Advertising is based on one thing. Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams with reassurance that whatever you're doing, it's okay. You are okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of A Thing Like That, a Mad Men Cop podcast, a cod pass, whatever you call these <laughs> things. <laughs> I'm Michael Levito. I'll be your host, and joining me as always is my sister, Kathleen Levito. Hi, everybody. And today, we're going to talk about the first ever episode of Mad Men from its first ever season, Smoke Gets In Your Eyes. And you know what I should have done? Is pulled up to see who actually wrote and directed it. It was directed by Alan Taylor and written by show creator Matthew Weiner. Uh, so this show, what we're going to do is talk about what happened in it, uh, what we think the theme is, give out some awards for who's the worst and who has the best lines, um, talk about the foreshadowing in this episode, and then just kind of talk about our thoughts in general. So let's start off with what I, a segment I will call storyboards. Our summary of the plot. We start with a black title card, and it reads, Mad Men, a term coined in the late 1950s to describe the advertising executives of Madison Avenue. They coined it. And we're introduced to our hero, I guess? Don Draper in a busy Manhattan bar where he's brainstorming tobacco slogans on a napkin. A black bus boy comes over, gives him a light, and Don asks him what brand he smokes and why. White Waiter asks if Sam is being too chatty, Sam being the busboy. Don says they were having a conversation, orders an old-fashioned. That'll become a theme, ordering old-fashioned. <laughs> um, and continues talking. Don knocks on Midge's door late at night. She's an, a bohemian artist in the village. And she's drawing things for Grandmother's Day. She's drawing what I assume are greeting cards that she never actually says. I think she says greeting cards. Yeah. They discuss tobacco ads. He expresses that he's worried he'll fail in his big meeting with Lucky Strike cigarettes. And they make love. Next morning, Don asks Midge to marry him. Midge says it says no, and that she doesn't make plans and she doesn't make breakfast. She is not marriage material, according to her. Don is still worried about tobacco. <laughs> Peggy gets into the elevator. Peggy, <clears throat> I really should do this more poetically. Then we see a busy, bustling office lobby. Peggy goes through a revolving door after just you know streams and streams of sort of monochromatically dressed men come through, and she walks into a crowded elevator with. Ken Cosgrove of Counts, Harry Crane of Ad Buying, and Paul Kinsey, copywriter. They stand behind her and flirt and discuss Pete Campbell, also of the Counts' upcoming birthday party. And they get to the top. Uh, birthday. Bachelor party. I wrote down birthday. I apologize. Eventually they walk into Pete's office. He's on the phone with his fiancée, Trudy. And he says, well, I don't know what they have planned for my bachelor party. And they hold up a card for the Slipper Room, a burlesque club. Or strip club. I feel like they were kind of the same thing yeah. in the 60s. Um, meanwhile, Joan Holloway, the office manager, introduces Peggy to the office and also tells her to dress sexier. Roger enters Don, Roger Sterling, partner of Sterling Cooper, enters Don's office as Don changes his shirt and they talk about tobacco. Roger asks if there are any Jews on staff that they can bring into a meeting with Mengen's department store to make the owner, a Jewish family, more comfortable. Don drops a purple heart and, uh, uh, excuse me, Don drops a, a wooden box with a purple heart in it that reads Lieutenant Donald Francis Draper. Kathleen? 
I'm, I might sneeze, just oh, everybody okay. knows. Feel free to interject whenever you want to. Uh, Salvador Romano, the art director, comes in to discuss the tobacco campaign. He shows a picture of a shirtless man with a cigarette that his neighbor <laughs> posed for. Sal Romano lays on, you know, his heterosexuality a little thick, talks about how much he loves his job because he gets to draw girls and cast them and things. And then Dr. Gutman, a research psychologist with the firm, comes in and discusses the Freudian death wish, saying that their path to defeating the scientific claims made about cigarettes and their cancerous properties lie in appealing to this death wish, this desire to die. Don thinks this is perverse, and he throws her report in the trash. Don eventually falls asleep on his couch, where he hears bombs and other explosions in his dream before being woken up by Peggy. She tells him Pete is waiting outside. Pete comes in and starts flirting aggressively with Peggy. They leave his office. Uh, Don and Pete leave his office, argue about Peggy, and go into the Mankins meeting. Peggy goes to Joan's gynecologist to get Envoid, which is a birth control pill, and he tells her not to become the town pump. <laughs> Such a charming bedside manner. In the, in the Menken's meeting, they meet Rachel Menken, the owner and operator of Menken's department store. They were expecting her to be a man, so much so that Don Draper goes out to shake the hand of the man in there. It turns out he was a Jewish person who worked in the mailroom that they got to, you know, make them seem more inclusive. Um, Rachel does not like the ideas that Sterling Cooper presents, because they're just things like coupons and other promotions of women magazines. Pete suggests that they can't get the French continental kind of clientele that Menken's wants, and Rachel thinks it's because they think they're just another Jewish department store. Uh, eventually, Don and Rachel get to arguing. Don gets upset and yells at Rachel, and he storms out of the office with Pete. Joan takes Peggy to meet the switchboard operators to wine and dine them into, you know, making her calls all go through. She brings them presents, and they all tell Peggy to show more like. Later in the Likey Strike meeting, Lee Garner Sr. and Lee Garner Jr. are angry by the negative effects of tobacco studies I, have to, I wrote down tobacco studies on tobacco. I should stop writing these at midnight. About tobacco studies that have been published in Reader's Digest. Um, they're in this meeting with Pete, Don, and Roger. Don is really, really unprepared. He doesn't have anything planned. He doesn't know what to do. Pete swoops in with the death wish research that Dr. Gutman mentioned. He stole it from Don's trash. Um, Don gets very upset, but the, and, and the Garners get up to leave, but then Don asks them how cigarettes are made. They explain the process, which includes toasting the tobacco, and Don comes up with the slogan, it's toasted. The logic there, everyone else's cigarettes are poisoned, lucky strikes, well, they're toasted. Afterwards, Don and Roger have a drink in Don's office, and Roger brings up working on the Nixon cabinet. Excuse me. Pete brings in Harry, Ken, and Paul um, to celebrate Don's success, and Roger asks Don to make good with Rachel. Don declines the bachelor party invitation, and Don calls out Pete for using his research. Peggy thanks Don for a good first day, puts her hand on his, awkwardly coming on to him. He removes her hand, says not to let it happen, says not to let things like Pete rummaging through things happen again, reminds her that he is her boss, not her boyfriend, um, and she eventually gets upset, but he promises her, promises her that she'll have a fresh start tomorrow. At the bachelor party, the guys are all having a good time, and three girls join them. One of them sits next to Pete, and he makes a move. She refuses. He ignores. She refuses again and leaves him for Ken. Who wouldn't? Um, Don and Rachel go get dinner. He asks her why she isn't married. She says she's never been in love. He does his little, very famous monologue about love. She won't get married because she's never been in love. I think I wrote that. It was to sell nylons. For a lot of people, love isn't just a slogan. 
you mean love? You mean big lightning bolt to the heart where you can't eat and you can't work and you just run off and get married and make babies. The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. Is that right? Are you sure about it? You're born alone and you die alone, and this world just drops a bunch of rules on top of you to make you forget those facts, but I never forget. I'm living like there's no tomorrow, because there isn't one. She says she feels bad for him and thinks he might be disconnected like she is. Um, they agree, agreed to meet again at, at Sterling Cooper on Monday. Towards the end, Pete knocks on Peggy's door in Brooklyn in her apartment. Her roommate Marjorie answers. Pete asks for Peggy. Um, she eventually comes see him and he says he had to see her. She brings him into her apartment. Later, back in Austin, New York, Don takes the train back there and drives back to his house where he enters. He wakes up his wife kiss a little bit, start to fool around, but then he goes into his kid's room and just kind of holds them and stares off into the great black night. And that's the end. I'm going to get up and turn off the air conditioning because it's making a noise. Kathleen, any thoughts on that plot? Um, it was very thorough, Michael. <laughs> you really covered all of the bases with that one. Um, I can't say you missed anything. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a, but it's a good, it's a comprehensive plot uh, for a, um, what are they called, pilot episode. Yeah, yeah. I always feel that when you have a new show, like, you can never take, the pilot always tries to cram in everything it wants, it wants the entire show to be, so it can be a little overwhelming or it can feel a little forced, so you can never take a pilot as final word on something. But this one, as pilots go, this one was pretty, pretty good. Yeah, the first season is not really, like, my favorite season. I think it leads into some, like, sort of things it thinks are edgier. Um, things like the Death Wish research. And I guess that's really kind of it for this episode. But, uh, it, it yeah, it sets it up well. And it, it's, there's, there's a degree of misdirection as far as, like, Betty, Don's wife, not being revealed yeah. till the last, like, five minutes. But we'll get to that and why that might be. Um, are we ready to talk themes? Let's talk themes. I don't have a name for this segment yet, but we'll uh, we'll figure it out. Um, all right. So actually, we said initially that I was that we were gonna I like I would say the theme first, and then explain why, and you say your theme, and then explain why. But let's both say our themes first. My theme is expectations. My theme is duplicity. Oh. All right. So expectations. Why is that? At the beginning, we were introduced to Don. He asks a black waiter what brand of cigarette he smokes, and a white waiter comes by and asks if this black waiter is bothering Don. Um, it's because he's not expecting Don to want to talk to a black busboy. Um, Don subverts this guy's expectations and actually saying, "Actually, no, we were having a conversation, you know." And in that conversation, excuse me, a cat is trying to exit this room. <laughs> In that conversation, um, they talk about stereotypes, right? They talk about magazines and Reader's Digests, and Sam, the busboy, says ladies do love their magazines. Um, when Don goes to Midge's apartment, he doesn't really kind of go after her initially, right? He just kind of is very worried about the tobacco campaign. She says, ah, you really are here to talk. Midge wasn't expecting a conversation. He was, you know, she's just kind of sleeping together. That's all she was expecting. And so this kind of subverts that as well. Um, 
She also reveals that she owns her own business, atypical for the time, as we'll also find with Rachel Mencken. Um, and she also says that she doesn't make plans or make breakfast the things women of her time would be expected to do. Um, now, we talk, that kind of talked about like you know people who are subverting expectations, but there's also a lot of people who are trying to live up to expectations that have been set for them. Most notably, Ken, Harry, Paul, and Pete. They're all living up to sort of the caddish ideals of the era and the idea that they should be at once married family men and also sort of like rampant womanizers. Um, they're having this sort of like raunchy bachelor party because it's what they're expected to do. Um, and it, actually when they sort of like, you know, flirt or cat call Peggy on their elevator and they get to the floor they're supposed to be on, um, <clears throat> they ask Ken, like, why'd you do it? He goes, oh, well, you have to set expectations, right? They say, what if she's assigned to one of us? He goes, well, you have to expect expectations. They have to know what to expect. Um, you know, what kind of girl you want them to be. Meanwhile, Pete, in reference to his bachelor party while he's on the tree, says he isn't expecting anything. So he actually used the word expectations. <laughs> now, I think this really plays, um, like, you know, uh, well, okay, no, not getting there yet. So they also expect the Mencken's people to want to have a Jewish person in the room with them. Uh, Sal Romano, he's also playing up to expectations too. He's expected to be kind of this, like, horny heterosexual guy is expected to really want to draw women stuff like that this is a spoiler but i'm not gonna really like put it in the spoiler section because like if you can't figure this out i'm sorry sal is gay um and it's made pretty clear um but he tries to sort of hide it as as much as he can when they're at the bachelor party they ask him is he married he goes come on i'm italian he's kind of playing into two separate things there right um one of being, again, kind of just like a straight womanizer, and also this idea of, like, Italians being, you know, womanizers. I can't really come up with a better <laughs> word than that, can I? Um, in the Mencken's meeting, I think this is what really illustrates the theme the best, right? Um, so Don goes in expecting to meet a man, actually shakes the hand of David Cohen, who is the guy they took from the mailroom to sort of pretend to be from the art department. Um, and Rachel actually says, you were expecting to be my man, so is my father. People are just not expecting a woman to be running this business. Um, she had higher expectations of what Sterling Cooper could provide her with. Um, and actually, gender roles are kind of flipped in this. Rachel behaves like a man in the meeting. She's blunt, critical, and cutting. Don takes offense, and Roger tells him not to get too emotional, much like someone might sort of stereotypically assign to a woman being too emotional in a state of stress. Um, Don is not acting like the man he should be expected to be. This is not this this sort of like you know he's not he shouldn't be offended. He should be resilient, right? He shouldn't be hurt that people don't like his work. Um, and as there's as Pete and Don storm out of the office, Pete says, "Well, you know, you can't expect money and education to take the rude edge out of people playing into Jewish stereotypes." Meanwhile, Peggy is presented with her own bit of expectations, right? And it's funny because she has a different expectation for the world. She grew up in a conservative catholic family in bay ridge i guess that's kind of a spoiler but not really um and you know she's expected to have things like aspirin and whiskey ready for don don tells her to entertain pete like won't be entertained to uh expected to entertain a guest um and she asks does she have to she's trying to push against that expectation don says that i know what you would want to um she doesn't look like a city girl pete asks her if she's amish <laughs> um she doesn't look like people are expecting her to and then when she goes uh, to thank Don for having a good day and she puts her hand on his, 
she is playing to an expectation that she's trying to sort of replicate, right? She's thinks secretaries are expected to flirt with their bosses and to sleep with them, and then Don is clearly not interested in that at all. Um, yeah. And also, just on like a more humorous note, when Joan introduces her to the switchboard operator, she's like, this is the nerve center. These people run things here, right? Very dramatic. Um, and also, the expectation of wanting a birth control while she is unmarried is kind of also not expected. Um, Pete says he's no expectation for the party. Um, and Don accuses him of expecting the world to be one big brazier strap. He, one big brazier strap for him to snap. He has expectations of the world. He thinks it's his oyster. Um, he expects the girl from the automat to be loose and want to sort of like, you know, fool around and she does not at all. Um, in the Lucky Strike meeting, Roger says that's your cue. He's expecting Don to speak. And Don, for the moment, fails to live up to expectations until he actually is with the year toasted tagline. Um, Pete also is like, you should play into masculine ideals. You're a man. You want danger. Expected to want danger. Later, after the Lucky Strike meeting, when Don and Roger are talking, Roger says, why wouldn't you want to work this presidential campaign? He's young, handsome, and naval captain. He's Dick Nixon. You were expecting him to say John F. Kennedy, the other person running for president in 1960. Um, and then, of course, there is the dinner with Rachel. They each order stereotypical feminine masculine drinks, playing into expectations there. Um, and Rachel doesn't want to get married. She plays against those expectations, but she wants to be married for love, but it's not her end goal. She wants to turn the business into what she wants it to be that undercuts people's expectations of her. And, of course, Don is turning up to expectations himself. Even though he, isn't, he seems like an outsider, he is, at the end of the day, a married family man, living, ex- living up to expectations in a suburban house with his pretty wife and beautiful children. We have to fix this segment because I would just monologue for so, so long. Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll That's fine-tune okay. that. Um, <laughs> should I go? Yes, should I what's go? your theme? Well, my theme is duplicity. Um, just to start this off, I do not have everything jotted down like <laughs> Michael does, but I will explain it as best I can from my memory. Um, and when I'm talking about duplicity, I often think that there is a connotation that comes with that word that is sly or cunning or um, that of like pretend or lying. I'm talking about duplicity as in truly living double lives in the fullest sense. Um, this is a thing, if you are familiar with astrology, I will actually probably pull a lot of astrology into this podcast. Apologies if you don't like that in advance. It'll be low-key. But the duplicity of a Gemini, where you are living multiple lives, but you're living them to your fullest, not because... Um, you know, you're trying to necessarily undercut someone, but because you know that different expectations or living up to different expectations to pull in Michael's theme to get you different places and different scenarios. So you see all these characters doing different things. Um, for example, Don in, uh, you know, in his, um, in his world of work, I guess you could say, or like his city life will go with city versus suburban. Um, he is doing all, he is fully living the life of that single, again, womanizing career man who holds nothing back. You know, he talks to the um, African American waiter because he wants something from him and he, because he's being a very shrewd businessman. Um, he, he acts domineering when he's talking to Rachel Mankin because this is his profession and he's going to act the way that he believes he should. Um, he's going to fulfill that version of himself to the best degree. Um, same thing when he's meeting 
uh, the women throughout the episode he is, you know, this the charming, handsome, you know, man that he, you know, that life calls him to be. And when he goes home, he's very sweet. He's kind to his wife. He holds his children. He is the husband that you would think you want. Duplicity meaning just, you know, fully grasping all these different strings of life and becoming them. Um, same thing with Peggy. Peggy um, was a, you know, model student at whatever secretary school she went to and she got the job like she was supposed to and now she's being introduced to a world that she I don't think expected at first but when Joan's throwing her around um you know she she quickly adapts to everything that Joan is telling her and she's like all right if this is the way it has to be then this is who I'm going to become um you will learn later that Joan has this is not really a spoiler but she has some other lives that she's leading herself we can talk about that later um in the in the series I guess uh, same thing with Pete. He says, he tells the, the men when they come in to take him on his bachelor party that he's really in love with his wife and that he's happy and he's excited to spend the rest of his life with her. Um, as you would expect from a man who's about to get married. On the other hand, he goes full throttle when he's brought to um, the slipper room. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, so you, I'll end it there so we can keep this section a little... Uh, uh, tight and sweet but um yeah duplicity of literally truly living multiple different lives and not missing a beat with any one of them yeah yeah um good stuff i uh, yeah I, it's funny i i think we kind of have like we there's like similar yeah things right where it's like living up to things and like how you're running your life is kind of what our, what our themes. Yeah. I think it's pretty much the same thing we're talking about. We're yeah. just, we're looking at it through different lenses. Yeah. yeah. Um, you're looking at it as like an internally generated. Yes. Exactly. Whereas I'm looking at it as like people trying to conform and subvert sort of like outside expectations. Yes. I think. Yeah. I think that I will not pull in a lot of personality trait things, but because this is a character heavy show, I may end up pulling a lot of personality language into this. Mm. Um, not just astrology audience I promise it will be other things as well Uh, but I think that I'm going to end up looking at characters from internal motivations Mm -hmm. um, rather than just the world so we'll see where this leads us yeah we will alright well our next segment um, is the Pete Campbell Memorial Worst of the Week Um, called because if you've watched the show before you know Pete Campbell's kind of the worst he, he goes through some growth, certainly, but by and large, I think he's going to win this award most weeks. Yeah. Um, and I think he's going to win in our inaugural week, too. What do you think? Ken Cosgrove is pretty bad. He is. What, my argument for Pete is okay. that Pete is engaged. Um, Ken Cosgrove is not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means Pete is not only being a pig, he's also being a treacherous pig. And you know it's he he's he's he he's very he's just way worse at doing it. Yes, he is. <laughs> and it's to the point where it becomes more openly. It feels like he's targeting people. The whole part where he's like in Don's office and just like just just ogling Peggy and, mm-hmm. and really 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 going for it, which was just like I don't know what he's trying to do there. Um, I, to me, that that takes away. He is clearly the least likable person early on, um, and just 
and he's 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 also clear, he's he's conniving, right? He steals yeah. Don's notes. Um, he, he that's true. He's 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 just doing all the kind of sneaky things you come to expect from Pete Campbell right off the bat. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think Ken hit me initially mm. because having seen the entire series, I see the growth in in Ken. Is uh, did I say Pete or Ken hit me initially? Ken. Ken hit me initially because there's there's a shift in his character mm-hmm. that happens quickly. Um, Pete, not so much. So I was like, oh, what else were we expecting? Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. Once you lay it out like that, I do agree that Pete mm-hmm. probably wins the award. Yeah. Richard's pretty clean and fair in this episode. Um, Sterling. Roger. Roger. Yeah, Roger, Roger's not in this episode a ton. No. Um, it takes some while to get going. And he's... What's interesting about this show is that they're... For most of the characters, aside from maybe a handful, they do pretty unlikable and sort of unattractive things um, and are kind of reprehensible in their own way, but at the same time are incredibly endearing. And you kind of spend enough time with them that you, you you start to forgive them for things that maybe you shouldn't forgive them for. Especially Roger Sterling, mm-hmm. who's by far, in my mind, the most entertaining person on the show. Yes. And John Slattery, partly, because he's a fantastic actor. But it's it's weird, because you end up liking characters who you know have done really bad things. Yeah. So, um, yeah. All right, we're ready to look on to the Roger Sterling best line of the week. Yes. Cool. I, I I was not prepared for this segment at all. I I'm, I have so no lines. My, mine comes part of a uh, <clears throat> dialogue, and it actually segue into our foreshadowing uh, section. Pete Campbell says to Don Draper, "Man like you, I'd follow into combat blindfolded. I wouldn't be the first. Am I right, buddy?" Don Draper says, "Let's take it a little slower. I don't want to wake up pregnant." <laughs> and that takes us into our foreshadowing segment. Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. There are going to be spoilers after this. So, foreshadowing. Obviously, that has a lot to do with foreshadowing, because Pete visits Peggy at the end of this episode. We know what happens after that, and we know that Peggy ends up pregnant and gives birth to a child at the end of the first season. Um, I was pretty surprised, actually, when I saw that one. I was like, ah, this is like a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of foreshadowing There's in it. There's a lot of foreshadowing. And a lot of it comes at Pete's expense. Um, another great line that I haven't... It, I, when I'm thinking great line, I'm usually thinking like stuff that's funny. Um, but right here, uh, during this whole sort of flattery... Uh, actually, right after Pete is done sort of you know, verbally groping Peggy and Don sort of berates him for it. He goes, <clears throat> keep it up. And even if you do get my job, you'll never run this place. You'll die in that corner office, a mid-level executive with a little bit of hair who women go home with out of pity. Want to know why? Because no one will like you. It's not only foreshadowing because no one will like Pete, but also because he goes bald. <laughs> um, other little nuggets of foreshadowing. Um, the Dick Nixon thing. They do, of course, on the Run Dick Nixon campaign. Dick Nixon comes back later in the series as kind of the death of like the 1960s dream there's actually i think it's in the seventh season where don is getting drunk in a bar depressed that richard nixon has won the election ironic considering that he tried to help him win it eight years earlier um of course the cancer thing probably one of the darker foreshadowings there's a lot of talk about cancer and smoking in this 
And Betty, an avid smoker, but pretty much everyone smokes in this show, will end up dying of lung cancer. Um, Don tells Peggy that she will wake up with a fresh start in the morning. Don knows a thing or two about fresh starts, of course, uh, coming home from Korea and stealing the identity of his commanding officer, Don Draper. Don, of course, was born as Dick Whitman. And Kathleen, you pointed out that when Roger refers to a handsome naval hero and starts with Dick, that Don could hear just, you know, perhaps his heart jumped into his throat. Maybe he knew that he was Dick Whitman all along. And uh, this one, it I didn't realize this till like a day after I watched this. But Roger's like anti-Semitism, it comes back later in the series. Yeah. Um, when they pursue a contract with Manischewitz, the Jewish wine company, um, and he tries to get Michael Ginsburg, their uh, copywriter who happens to be Jewish as well, on the account and thinks that it'll make them happier that they have a Jewish person on the account. And also, when he goes to business business dinner with them, he brings in a estranged wife, Jane Siegel, who's also Jewish. And she says, so this is the first time you're not ashamed that I'm Jewish. So it's, as the show evolves, Roger's thinking along the lines do not. Um, yeah, actually, you'll find late, uh, moving into the show that Roger is actually quite racist. Yes. Um, and I, and it, you learn that it comes from his involvement in World War II. He, was, mm-hmm. he fought in World War II, so he has a lot of prejudices against the people he fought against. Um, which is, of course, not to defend Roger, but no. it adds depth to his character. And because he tends to be a very lighthearted character, and mm-hmm. he does add a lot of the humor into the show, it can be um, surprising or can take you aback when he you see a harsher side of him. Yeah. It's funny, because I feel like watching this, you kind of project modern values and expect modern values of a lot of the characters. This, we'll get to it when this comes, but there was a character... Um, one of the Smitties, um, who comes out as gay in the office, and Ken goes, I never really, he goes, I have nothing wrong with the idea of queers, I just don't like the idea of working with them. Mm. Which is like, which, you know, took me aback when I first saw it, because you wouldn't expect such an openly homophobic remark uh, to go over now, and Ken seems so young, but really, he was probably born in, like, the 30s. Mm. Um, So... So, yeah, any other closing thoughts about this, uh, about um, this episode? I think just to talk about, for people who did not listen to the spoiler section, in the spoiler section we talk about how we come into the show with modern expectations for the characters or believing that, you know, the beliefs of the characters wouldn't align with the beliefs of our generation. Um, and that was really hard for me to see in the first it was a hard, re- harsh, I don't know the word. Edit this out, Michael. It was. <laughs> like a wake-up call? A wake-up call. Not a wake-up call, but like, it was surprising when I first watched the show. And in the first few scenes, you see Peggy just, like, berated with sexist comments. And then you see Joan just, you know, plank straight into the stereotypes of the time. And I almost turned the show off, and this is one of my favorite shows, turns out to be one of my favorite shows, first episode almost turned it off about eight minutes in, because I was like, this is disgusting, I cannot watch this. Um, and it's, I, it's really lines of a kind of the Me Too movement, um, which is interesting, and I, I think that this show actually might have even done better now than it did when it first aired, mm. because of how... I'm sure they would have twisted the storylines a bit, 
to be a little bit more up to date. Um, but it really speaks to like this time period that we're living in. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's oddly prescient in that yeah. like it, it took sort of like workplace sexual harassment as like a major theme. Yeah. In the show, yeah. I, I think if I have a criticism of the first episode, it definitely lays on. I think a lot of like the sixty stuff thick. Yeah. Um just like the jokes about sort of like smoking and like sort of like the the sexual and like racial attitudes that are revealed, which, you know, I'm sure are authentic, but it's like you can tell like it's Matthew Winner trying to be like look, this is, like, you know, how different it was back then. Ah, like, you know, he's, he's painting it as this sort of, like, you know, less civilized era. Maybe that's yeah. the right word. But, like, it, it sort of plays into that a little bit. Um, like, because really everything from, like, the elevator ride to the gynecologist appointment is just, like, oozing sexism. Yeah. Which, again, I'm not saying that's inauthentic, but, like, it, it it's, they're clearly trying to, like, push yeah, it. Yeah, within a script, it can come off cartoonish. Exactly. When right. it's yeah, one yeah, scene yeah. after another. Yeah, cartoonish is the best way to put it, where it's, yeah, it, it tries, yeah, maybe a little hard, and, and like, there's, like, there's, in, in the Lucky Strike meeting, it's, like, someone lights up a cigarette, and everybody just starts coughing, which, like, haha, irony, but it's, like, irony you can see coming from, like, a million miles away. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any anything else about this episode? Anything like when you first watched it? What stood out aside from the the very uncomfortable? Um, um, I think the twist ending with Don. I think that like the expect a lot of the expectations I had known about the show obviously for years before I watched it, and then seeing the characters actually play out was interesting. Um, I found Joan to be a lot harsher. Mm-hmm. I found her to be a very imposing character. Yeah. Um, so that was interesting. Just like automatically, I was just like, oh, I don't like this woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Don going home immediately, like seeing Don's day life and then him going home immediately fostered empathy for his wife, mm-hmm. um, which will be interesting to see how that <laughs> plays out. It doesn't out. play out as expected. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it was a lot of emotional twists and turns. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's, it is it is very much a pilot episode. Yeah. Um, like, that sort of, like, twist ending, I don't think you could get away with from, like, a regular episode of this, but um, or any show. But, yeah, it, it, it introduces you to the characters, what's going on, introduces you to uh, to, to, to Don Draper, and, and it, ma- it makes you sort of, like you know, realize why people like him and want to be around him and, and it establishes, like, the very early traits of Pete and his snakiness, his yes. slipperiness, um, which would become a thing. So, yeah, overall, a good start. Looking forward to watching the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, anything else before we, we finish this up? I think that's it. All right. Good. I think we need to iron out the kinks of that uh, that uh, themes thing. Um We'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll figure it Maybe out. Maybe I'll just write less. <laughs> and yeah, I feel like we need to loosen up a little bit too. Our, our other podcast is... It's very loose. The Real Life Oscar podcast, or challenge, is very loose. But I, it's more, but this is more structured. I don't know. We, we don't need to we'll talk about our editorial process yeah. on the podcast. So uh, thanks so much for listening. You can follow us on, or subscribe to us rather, on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Look us up on Spotify. Um... As I mentioned, we do another podcast called The Real Life Oscar Challenge, where we're watching every Oscar-nominated Best Picture of our lifetime, and we do that with my roommate, Lars. So fun stuff all around. Um, 
My name's Michael Levito. You can see me on Twitter at MLevito. And on Letterboxd, I'm a Merrimike. My name's Kathleen Levito. I'm on Letterboxd at Kathleen Levito, but I don't post there, so go to Instagram at Rise to the Sun. All right. Thanks so much for listening. And yeah. See you later. Bye. I'll come up with a snappier outro <laughs> later, but uh, yeah. That's it. And uh, episode two coming up next. <laughs>